by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have A Shot in the Dark, starring Peter Sellers, Elki Somar, and Herbert Lom, directed by Blake Edwards. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're starting a new film review cast. We've got a new bourbon here to try out. Uh, we're calling this one Who Done It? We Talk About It. Looking at all the great, you know, uh, mystery whodunits that, that have been. And the way we're kind of defining mysteries a, a little loose, it could be a kidnapping, an assassination attempt, an actual murder, and. Yeah, pour, pour, yeah pour, pour, me, pour me a stiff one there. That's kind of been the MO of you for. for as of late so <laughs> yeah yeah we're so we're gonna have a lot to talk about as we preface last week this is all kind of in lead up to uh knives out which comes out the week of thanksgiving it's a film that's been getting a lot of buzz uh around um around around hollywood and so we're, we're excited to see that from ryan johnson of you know, directed the last jedi so you know here we go um we're trying something new today we've gone facebook or instagram live here for our flight question to kind of get some live audience participation so we can kind of see you know you know what 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 you think and if you want to contribute to to the question so love it matt i'm going to turn it over to you so you can hit us with that um with that flight question but before before we get started we have a new bottle let's introduce that we're Yes, the new bottle this week is 1792. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had 1792, I believe, on the podcast before. Mm -hmm, but not single barrel. Single barrel. Uh, bought this at Total Wine, so specially bottled for Total Wine. Mm -hmm. uh, barrel number, I don't know, whatever the hell that is. Two little three something. Hmm. Um, should we give it a test drive let's, here? Let's do let's it. See. Let's Cheer, see. Cheers, Matt. Cheers. Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. That's a harsher start and a mellow finish. Uh -huh. I can feel that in my nose, though, a little bit. <laughs> I can feel That's that nice. in my mm -hmm. mm hmm Yeah, not bad. Good. Off to a great start. So, Matt, hit us with that flight question this week. Do I need to explain this a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. Typecast is... A term that's used sometimes in Hollywood where a person is continuously cast over and over in the same type of role. You brought up a good example last week with PJ Souls, mm -hmm. sort of the bitchy high school friend. This isn't quite typecast, but it's sort of in that vein. Obviously, the movie tonight, Shot in the Dark, has Peter Sellers, and nobody else does not see Peter Sellers as anybody but Inspector Jacques Clouseau. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of our own personal preference on top three typecast. That is character played by a specific actor that are your three favorite that couldn't be done by anybody else. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. So we yeah. go first or me to go first? Did you kind of preface, like, is there a minimum of how many times they've played the character? Let's say has to have been at least twice. Okay. One time, one might work, but let's say at least twice. So two times in there and um, like you're kind of working there, so I'll go first. Go ahead. At number three for me is a man who only made five films. Each of those five films was actually nominated for Best Picture. Okay. Uh, I wouldn't ever say he was a leading man. He died really young, like late 30s, mostly from lung cancer, but he's such a chain smoker. It's John Cazale mm -hmm. as Fredo Corleone. Nobody else in the world can play that role. 
he is put on this earth to literally be Fredo. I know those other films, Dog Day Afternoon, The Conversation, are terrific films, but he is always and only Fredo to me. It is perfect. I think he's impeccably cast. Um, an immensely talented man that was gone way, way too early. Meryl Streep bedside as he passed. Mm-hmm. Uh, guy didn't make a bad movie, but he was a terrific character actor as Fredo Corleone. And I think in the Godfather franchise, I won't say that character didn't get there just due because most of the second film revolves around him. Uh-huh. Or not most, but a lot of it. He's such an essential piece to the Corleone family. Oh, yeah. The forgotten middle brother that just never was anything but sick and... You know, dumb. Yeah, I think dumb. that I think that's fair to say. Yeah, he's kind of almost mousy, Shelley Duvall like in the first one, where oh, he's yeah. just kind of so pushed aside. And I love at the end when he finally goes to Vegas and Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. <laughs> but to go from film one to film two and the transition he takes and the tragic turn it takes. Yeah, how do you imagine anyone else? Well, first of all, they you know, if they ever remade The Godfather, heaven forbid. But, yeah, it would be interesting to see. Yeah, no one else could play arguably any of those characters. Uh, but, yeah, him, that's his defining film role. Dog Day Afternoon's great. Deer Hunter's phenomenal. Conversation. Conversation as well. Yeah, I'm with you. That's that's a pretty good one. Jesse, how do you say banana daiquiri? <laughs> <laughs> banana daiquiri. Banana daiquiri. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Love it. Alrighty. So, my number... My number uh, three is going to be, you know, we talk about superheroes a lot on the podcast and, you know, there's going to be a lot kind of coming up is, I mean, is that Hugh Jackman as Wolverine or Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man? But if there's one that I think he's just totally defined as that role, it has to be and rest in peace. What a great man in real life. Christopher Reeve as Superman. Yeah, great. Uh, truly believe, made us believe that a man could fly and i think he stood for everything that you know Schuster and Siegel you know really really stood for in, in that film uh superman 1 2 3 and uh, 3 and 4 are just kind of terrible let's let's be real kind of but I, it's i think i have a hard time accepting any other actor playing superman whether that's Brandon Routh or Henry Cavill or Tom Welling because I just picture him mm-hmm. so well. Mm-hmm. More than I picture his look in the comic books. I mean, he's the defining look of Superman. So, yeah, that's going to be my number three there. Spot on from the size to the spit curl. Mm-hmm. Classically trained at Juilliard. Mm-hmm. Literally a classically trained actor. Yeah. Getting one of the most iconic characters that's ever graced, not even the screen, just fiction in, in total. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, gone way too early. And look, had plenty of other really nice films. Yeah. Like lots of other good movies. Definitely. But... What was that? Was that? Is it not... It's a Death Trap? Mm-hmm. I yeah, love it. Yeah. Him and Michael Caine. Such a great movie. Oh, who done it? <laughs> Literally, who done it? Maybe we should do that one in yeah. a couple weeks. Yep. Um, yeah. Have you ever seen the screen test for that film? Yeah. With Boy. The pit, with the pit stains oh and everything? Oh, my gosh. He was very nervous for that, obviously. For oh, those yeah. of you who haven't seen it, he shows up to do the screen test on that movie. Mm-hmm. And his pits are just literally dripping with sweat through his costume. Mm-hmm. Despite that, they liked him so much that they still got the part. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. Love it. Number three for me. Okay, number two. Um, one of the things that we'll spend some time talking about today is, I think, how hard really successful comedy actors are on themselves. And I think that's where a lot of the comedic power or ability comes from. 
Okay, so when I talk about like Robin Williams, um, obviously John Belushi, today modern day Jim Carrey, the list goes on and on about people that are really funny comedians on screen mm-hmm. and what it takes to get there. Um, I wouldn't like this hasn't come yet, but I wouldn't be surprised if it does. It's Zach Galifianakis mm. as Alan Garner in The Hangover. The Hangover does. I think he makes that movie, especially the first one. Mm-hmm. I think that franchise is troubled after the first entry, the second and third. We could get into that someday if you'd like. Yeah, um, they sort of lost what made that film work. <laughs> to take a relatively an unknown actor and put him in that from the wolf pack of one to it's a man purse, a satchel to roofing his own crew. Yeah, some of that's the writing. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that is the ability to take that writing and put it to effect on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, And, man, I think they kind of took a chance with him. Oh, yeah. And, man, killed it. Hit it out of the park on that one. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, we're the three best friends and, like, him (laughs) him in his Rain Man moment. And (laughs) I I had never really heard of him prior to that film. I know he'd been doing stand-up and various forms of comedy before then, but... That was, yeah, you're right, a chance kind of on all three of them, I would kind of say. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. him to really kind of stick out and kind of make it his own. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. Yeah. yeah. All right, good. Number right. two for you? Number two for me. So uh, with this one, we're going to kind of, my next two are actually going to kind of stick in the same genre. So with my first one, we're going to go to a, a franchise, uh, Galaxy Far, Far Away. And it, it's had a lot of great talent from Carrie Fisher to Harrison Ford. But, you know, Harrison Ford's been able to kind of say he's Jack Ryan and Indiana Jones and, and whatnot. But uh, for one that I have to say, it's got to be Mark Hamill and, as Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know he's phenomenal as the Joker. I, I, arguably the, doing the best Joker voice and laugh of the entire bunch of actors. Mm-hmm. But it's really hard not to picture him as Luke Skywalker and, you know, the, the trail... Uh, that of the hero that he takes in New Hope, Empire, and Return of the Jedi, but I think done very, very, very decently by him too. Mm-hmm. And if the, you know, of, of the three, if to, your curse of Star Wars is to say, I'm only going to be remembered as this character, it's pretty good. Could be to, worse to yeah. be say I, I played Luke Skywalker on screen. Like that's that's pretty great. So great. he's number two for me. I kicked around all of the characters from Star Wars, Mm -hmm. and mostly the reason that I didn't choose any of them was because I couldn't decide who was more iconic. Mm -hmm. Um, You you can't argue with Luke Skywalker. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all love his work in Corvette Summer, but... (laughs) Corvette Summer! Luke Skywalker's better. (laughs) Number one for me? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, so this one wasn't even hard. Okay. It's Burgess Meredith as Mickey and Rocky. Mm. You know my favorite scenes in all of film are... The picnic scene in The Hustler mm-hmm. and the pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstrap scene in the church and the hospital in Rocky II. Burgess Meredith is a really interesting character, classically trained as Elizabethan, uh, some globe work, lots of stage stuff. And then they find the most hardened, cantankerous bastard that ever set foot mm-hmm. in the world of boxing in that movie. And put him opposite uh, opposite Stallone as Rocky, mm-hmm. and man, every single line that that guy has in any of those films, I find myself just hanging on. Um, and when he goes up to Rocky's 
apartment in the first film to try to make up and talk Rocky into letting him be his trainer. And then that scene in the church that I just mentioned, you're acting. Oh, yeah. You are really, really acting. If I was ever going to have to take on Apollo Creed, I want Mick training me. Because the only person in the movie that's tougher than Apollo Mm -hmm. is Mick. And man, he breaks Rocky down and builds him back up. And he's got that gravelly voice. Yeah. This guy ain't going to kiss you. Mm -hmm. He's going to kill you, Rock. Yep. You're going to eat lightning and crap thunder. Like all of that is just so, it's just so spot on. Yeah, he tells him he's going to get his ass kicked like in every film. Like he's like, he always tells him, he starts out with, you don't stand a chance. Yeah. And I think that's part of the learning lesson with with Mickey. Mm -hmm. And no, yeah, like it's almost, he's rough with him. But then when he goes to him in that apartment, that, that scene you're talking about, real somber, really trying to reach out to him that, hey, I want to be a partner in this, you know, for, for, with, with you and. He didn't have no manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to come in here? It stinks. The whole place stinks. <laughs> Excellent. I love it. Uh, that's, that's, you know, I'm never going to argue anything rocky. Like, it's one of the few things to get me emotionally, like, like <laughs> on the verge of tears. So, every time. Every time. Agreed. All righty. Okay. So, number one for me, again, I told you we're going to kind of stick in science fiction. The other franchise that is Star Trek. And how can William Shatner not go his whole life without being Captain James Tiberius Kirk? Yeah. He played it for three seasons on the TV show. Another, let me do the math, five, six, seven films. Uh, I mean, the guy's played it so long. I know he's did stuff, Kingdom of the Spiders. Did you ever watch Rescue 911? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That show kind of scared me as a kid. Adrian Zemed, I believe, is in that Yeah, yeah. Between uh, Rescue 911 and Unsolved Mysteries, such a horrific uh, double double team right there. For what my... was that law show that he did with Spader also? Oh, Boston Le- Legal? Yeah. I yeah. Think, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, but like, he's iconic. Everything from right. the mannerisms to just the body language, to his physical or his physical action, yeah. and I think some pretty great performances, uh, and mainly Rathacon. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, I so I I got I got to go with with William Shatner. I, he's gonna, but again, what a great honor! I played James T. Kirk, and that's like those are legacy roles. You know what I'm talking about? I do. They remember you for that. They ain't gonna remember you for whatever just random TV role you were on, and that was kind of your claim to fame. Like those are all time. Like oh roles so yeah i gotta pick pick that i'm shocked right now Mm -hmm. i have to tell you i'm absolutely sitting here in stunned silence not because you picked him and i disagree yeah when you said science fiction i'm like oh this is going to be sigourney weaver as ripley and it's not even going to be close i know and you threw this one at me that's good yeah i like was she in con was she oh a a little bit but you know i like her i don't know as she's as legendary in other roles but her turn in Ghostbusters, and I think she's really great in Galaxy Quest as well. Kind of riffing on the whole Ripley casting mm-hmm. thing, like that's a whole movie about people has been, you not being able to find work. You know, like that movie's actually really smart. I actually agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, let's kind of let's kind of read some stuff. We got some some responses here. Cool. Uh, let's see. We got the nightclub podcast um hannibal lect anthony hopkins is hannibal lecter solid also mentioned clint eastwood is the man with no name yeah blondie yep and then let's see jamie lee curtis is laurie strode you definitely make that argument yep we got your goliath pal uh who said doc brown as or oh, christopher lloyd as doc brown that's good hey say that and oh, michael j fox is marty mcfly no he had a long turn there as alex p keaton on family ties but 
It's another really good one. That's solid. Sissy Spacek is Carrie. That's pretty good too. Like I, I associate Sissy Spacek in a few other films, but I always gravitate towards Carrie, especially when you see the latter redos of Carrie and how bad they are. Like mm-hmm. you see really how good she was. Mm-hmm. And then one, this is has to be the most, I can't believe we actually forgot this one. Daniel Radcliffe as Harry Potter. Like I didn't forget that one. Yeah. I just, yeah, I just, <laughs> just over it. <laughs> no, I, I just, I didn't, I just didn't want to go. On okay. Yeah. Awesome. That was great. It's great. Great. Thank you for Thank participating. Rye nation. We'll probably open this up again a, a couple more times to kind of see what you think, give you some live response versus waiting a couple days to give your response. But I think it's time, Matt. I think it's time for happy hour time and let's go and review a shot in the dark. A Shot in the Dark opens up with a French chateau, a mansion of sorts, and we're treated with a very interesting uh, people moseying around with their jobs, whether they're the caretaker, the gardener, the butler, kind of jockeying between rooms of this like courtyard of this chateau. Brilliantly, the song, um, The Shadow- Shadows of Paris, but written by Henry Mancini, He's, I think, a vital factor to a lot of these films because he's the one that wrote that Pink Panther theme in the original film. So right. I think he's got a good sense of like jazz and that, that type of background. But he also did like Breakfast at Tiffany's and Moon River. And this song has that. It's so it's romantic yet mysterious. Right. And I'm just trying to like figure out like what are all these characters doing? It's like everyone's like either having an affair against someone else or sleeping with each other and no one wants anyone to find out. And it's just like, what are we following here? It's kind of chaotic at the beginning. Um, shot in a really interesting way, which is kind of rear window-esque, mm-hmm. right? Outside, through the windows, looking at all of the action that's happening in the Chateau de Clandestine, mm-hmm. or whatever it's called. Yeah. Uh, you almost don't even really need to know who's going and who's doing. You just need to know that those rooms are getting a lot of action. <laughs> Um, and then we get to kind of the, I guess, in a sense, the beginning of the film. Yes. And that's one woman happens into another room that's already occupied by a man and another woman. Mm-hmm. And we just see a, sh- a gunshot. A shot in the dark. Literally. Yeah. It was, uh, and it's real, real mysterious. And the, 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 the song kind of reaches its climax. And this is our inciting incident. Yeah. It's the title of the film. Mm-hmm. And... You know, it kind of sets us on, on our way. I like this uh, beginning uh, I- intro in, in this film because yeah. it, it leaves me wanting a lot more. And what's going to be interesting next is this kind of title sequence. So those who are familiar with the Pink Panther franchise. So it started the year prior, 63, I believe, with the Pink Panther with David Niven and Peter Sellers. I think this film was only released four months after. Real soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was kind of like really right right into production. Mm -hmm. And so it starts the same way with the titular Pink Panther, which I'll just say right now, that's the genesis of that character was in that title sequence. Became so popular, they spun that off into a cartoon series Mm -hmm. for kids. 
But every film in this franchise has this kind of like cartoonish animated draw Fritz Freeling like title yeah. credit yeah well said Fritz Freeling yeah, I yeah. think he actually directed it <laughs> so I think that's oh. why I said his name okay. but I like this so we got kind of like this goof inspector kind of moseying about uh, as the kind of as the credits go this is kind of another staple of the franchise I, I've always really liked and again we're setting our tone for something moderately ridiculous and something to kind of have a good time with yeah but I guess this has to be stated more than anything. So this is, I think, episode 42 or 43 of Rice Mile Films. Um, pretty good so far, huh? I would say so. And I don't think we've done a true comedy yet. I think this is the first one. Oh my gosh, I think you're right. Yeah, so um, this is a unique... Serenity wasn't coming. Yeah, it was maybe a comedy when we were watching it. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, that was more of like a tragedy. <laughs> yeah. But no, yeah, so it's I guess time to talk about comedy. And we've talked about this a little bit on the horror episodes with, you know, kind of the releases of tension. Right. To me, comedy, or at least the comedies I like, and I like a wide range of comedies. And maybe that's where you and I differ. Mm-hmm. Like I like a lot of awkward um awkward situational comedy like The Office and Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Seinfeld. Um, or you like kind of like you like a real good like like raunch, but like a smartly written raunch comedy. Uh, forgetting Sarah Marshall, Zach and Mary, like kind of films like that. Hangover, so, Hangover, yeah. So this is kind of like how could we uh, categorize this? It's almost bordering on slapstick. Yes, but um, yeah, we'll just call it we'll call it slapstick. You do from the earliest conversations you and I have had about comedy have an affinity for a slapstick thing. We talked about how much you enjoy the Three Stooges. I love it. Yep. Physical comedy is really difficult to pull off. Mm-hmm. And if not done well, it can get old really fast. Mm-hmm. I think even for the most uh, forgiving of slapstick comedy fans. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am not one of them at all. Slapstick yeah. most of the time <clears throat> leaves me cold. Mm-hmm. But this movie... Uh, is done in such a way where you could almost make the case that, yes, it is slapstick and physical, but it's done in a way that's, I think, intertwined with Clouseau's character, that it's natural and not such a distraction as oftentimes that is for me. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Is that fair? Oh, definitely. Okay. Uh, Yeah, it's uh, such an interesting take, too. And I think Blake Edwards, as director, handles the staging of the slapstick very well. Mm Mm-hmm. And to me, slapstick really comes down to how are things, objects, settings, how are things placed throughout the scene so then our characters stumble or fumble about them as Clouseau does in magnificent fashion. So we're introduced first to Herbert Lom. He plays Chief uh, Inspector Dreyfus. Dreyfus. (laughs) As he goes along in the series, and you see seedlings of it here, is just his pure hatred for Clouseau. I just don't wonder why he just doesn't just fire him if he's such a thorn in his side. Maybe he doesn't have that authority. Right. But he just annoys him right from the get-go when um, I think it's uh, Hercule or uh, the, the other guy whose name's escaping me, but maybe oh, you yeah. could look it up. Yeah. Says, I did something very wrong, sir. What did you do? I sent Clouseau. And he's like, and you just kind of see the disdain in his face. Francois. Francois. There you go. Yeah. And then we're immediately introduced to Peter Sellers as Inspector Jacques Clouseau as he miraculously steps into the giant pond. You see, it's his situational awareness that just kills me because any normal human, Matt, you and I, we would be able to not do that. But 
he walks with such an air of self-importance. <laughs> right. And uh, just like ineptitude that this stuff just happens to him constantly. Or let me let me phrase it better. His um his situational awareness is at a zero. Like he is totally unaware of his surroundings. <laughs> his overconfidence for him mm-hmm. buys off his ineptitude because those are the two things we're mostly going to get. Mm-hmm. Is this bumbling moron essentially who doubles down on himself to such a way that it almost becomes more comedic because he has no idea <laughs> how absurd it is to step out of the car right into the pond. And then to be so proud of himself to barely even admit that anything has happened mm-hmm. when he walks in the house and that trench and all of those clothes that are sopping. He just keeps going. To me, Inspector Clouseau's like someone who is an ice skater who is going about through a routine and when they go for like a triple axel and and fall on their ass, they the skater gets right back up. That's what he does. Yes. He falls in something or coming up in the scene he gets like pen all over him or the 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 nose or the face cream on his nose and he just keeps going. Like he just there's no pausing for him. He goes right into the next thing and I think that's brilliantly played by Peter Sellers. It's almost like he's the figure skater that's never landed the triple axel. <laughs> And the judges are so tired of scoring him so lor- so lowly that they give him sixes just to get him the hell out of there. Yeah, exactly. Which Because he never lands a triple axel, no. but yet in every one of the iterations of any Pink Panther film, yeah. it somehow always kind of works out for him. It does, yeah. It's almost like that's his superpower, is to be such an imbecile mm-hmm. that he disarms the villain, yeah. and they end up with through frustration mm-hmm. kind of... Giving themselves up or giving some essential clue away. Mm-hmm. Not so much in this film. No, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's <clears throat> right away. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna do this film for the first time with some uh newbies that I haven't that have never seen it before, and I'm really curious to see what the reaction's gonna be mm-hmm. with him falling into the pond right away. Yeah. You can you either are like, oh no, here we go, or I think you're You're like, I want more of that. I do. Yeah. Yeah. So then we're introduced to Elkie Summer, who plays Maria Gambrelli. Miss Gambrelli. And she's kind of the prime suspect at this point. There's this dead body there, Miguel, Miguel, however they mispronounce it throughout the entire film. With the French accent that gets more French and more overwrought. That's something something he was real good at in this film. I think he really started to flesh out this character in the French because he's not French. No. Peter Sell is not a French man. No. Uh, he, he really starts to really hone in on those syllables. Like, it's like, it was um, a moth. A mooth? A mooth. A mooth. Yes, I said a mooth. Like, it becomes that. A play on, a play on words that he's really good at over-exaggerating yeah. to the point where no one really knows what each person's <laughs> saying. But Elkie Summer's really great. We just talked off mic that you asked if she was in a Bond film, and I think I told you, oh, but she should have been. Like yeah, this is around the time of uh, Goldfinger and Thunderball. She definitely could have fit like the, this kind of mold. I don't think I've seen her in any other film, and I'm sure I have. Like it's just you know my filmography from that era. It's like you know you were in a lot of films back then. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's got the Wrecking Crew. She's actually in the Wrecking Crew. Mm. How about that? Mm. Um, yeah, there's several. Uh, look, I think she's pretty enough to be the pretty face in the film. Uh, we're probably not going to remember a shot in the dark for Elke Summers' acting ability, but mm-hmm. she's really good at being pretty. Yeah, and 
Clouseau immediately. And I think a sense of charm, too. It's like a natural kind of like, it's an immediate infatuation. So whereas Clouseau on his job, on duty, should be appropriate and not start hitting on the prime suspect, he's immediately infatuated with her. So again, this comes... a lovely smell in your hair. Yeah. This comes back to another thing that I think just follows all these films is that, like, I don't think Peter Sellers, like, a Ryan Gosling type. He's not, like, the most great-looking man. But, man, all the chicks want him. You know what I mean? He has one of these women in every one of these films. It's kind of like this, like, doofus charm. Well, okay, to that, as much as he's the doofus charm in these films, is also five marriages. Oh, in real life. With some pretty big names in there. Um, Yeah, like, Peter Sellers, and I'm sure we're going to get into this a little bit, is a bit of a mess. And... You know, Br- married Britt Eklund. Oh, wow. Uh, that's big time score for yeah. Peter Sellers and his nose. She was a Bond girl. Yeah. <laughs> Anne Howe, uh, Miranda Quarry, uh, Lynn Fredericks, so I guess four. Mm. Um, yeah, so there was, maybe it was his comedic talent, but even in these films, he's pretty hapless when it comes to solving crimes. Mm-hmm. But to make the character even more so steadfast in his pursuit of the feminine target that he sets his sights on yeah and most of the time yeah catches her he does he, he, ah. re- he really does yeah um okay so let's kind of move along here he's made the vow to her that i'm gonna solve this case miss Gambrelli, and i'm gonna make prove your innocence because i know it's not you we cut back to clouseau at his uh quarters some apartment uh, and we're introduced to maybe one of my favorite aspects of this film and the rest of the fr- it's literally I think the part that I look forward to the most mm-hmm. and it's he has this uh, Chinese butler named Kato and first time watching this though you don't know this so you kind of think this man's like broken into his apartment and is trying to like attack him maybe he's working for the, cha- the chateau enemy and they just start going under like a karate battle <laughs> A terrible karate battle. We're talking full sneak my hands is blade karate chop guy. These sneak attacks. Like I, I absolutely love it. It's not until like and it always ends like they're someone's in a chokehold, they get a phone call or a ring at the doorbell, so they have to stop. Yeah. And then there's like Kato, you need to work on your on your on your approach. I saw you coming a mile away. Yeah. That type of thing. But <laughs> it's in the in the because there was the series takes an interesting kind of gap after this that I found out. Blake Edwards and Peter Sellers had a falling out on this film. Peter uh, Sellers pretty much had a falling out with everybody. Yeah, and he said, I, "I can never work with you again." Right. Luckily, they actually patched that up, and they came back for the party, which is a phenomenal comedy mm-hmm. um, with the two of them. But they came back again to the character for a Return of the Pink Panther, late seventies. And that has the best Kato him fight because he's going through his apartment, looking in every crevice, and then he lets his guard down and he opens up the fridge and Kato jumps out. That's going to be a theme in this film is the returning of characters. Yeah. Uh, Elka Summer returns later, I think, in um, Mystery... Uh, one, like one of the very... One of very, Yeah. And uh, Hercule, mm-hmm. Clouseau's he, he assistant, as well. comes back as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that leads to a legacy within this franchise that yeah. you can't but notice. Yeah. Herbert Lom. Who the hell is Herbert Lom other than yeah. Commander Dreyfus, who's just been driven mm-hmm. batty by Clouseau. Yeah. Um, and then 
there's got to be a story out there, and maybe we can look into that mm-hmm. for some time in the future. What it was between Sellers and Edwards that split them, which mm-hmm. I imagine is probably drugs and alcohol, but then what brought them back together? Because mm-hmm. I bet you that same charm mm-hmm. is what helped him to lock down Britt Eklund. Yeah, could be. He just has that Robin Williams kind of effect to him. Yeah. You can feel he's a disaster. Yeah. And then it's just so gregarious gregarious and mm-hmm. charming. Mm-hmm. It becomes semi-intoxicating. Yeah. And, and you know what? To Blake Edwards' credit, I'm glad you guys patched it up because they did really good work going forward. Well, I think Blake Edwards is a very capable, I think a pretty, have you ever seen The Day of Wine and Roses? Yes. Uh, that's, uh, that's him as well. Sinatra, right? No. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Sinatra. Yeah. 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 And uh, no, I think I think he he fits this realm so well. So what kind of what we're setting up here is kind of what happens in the Bond franchises, which is these tropes that we expect to see right. in all the films. Like I look forward to the next match with Cato. Maybe Cato can get him this time. Right. It comes back later in this film in the most hilarious of ways. It actually might be one of my favorite scenes in the film. Yeah. <laughs> so. We cut back to, I think, one of your favorite bits that you said, which is Clouseau talking to Hercule about um, the facts. The facts I said are. Frank Sinatra, I meant Jack Lemon. Oh, it is Jack Lemon, sorry, yeah. 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 Frank Sinatra played a, a similar role to that in another film where he was a. Golden Army. Yeah, Golden Army. There you go. There you go. So we're talking about the facts now, and these are the facts, and only the facts. And <laughs> Hercule say, like, oh, I think she did it. She's the one that did it. You idiot! <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> He literally lays out six things. Yes. Fact one. Mm-hmm. You know, like just where Hercule's like, this doesn't really sound like all that tough a case to figure out, Jacques. Uh-huh. And he says, well, she must have killed him. Mm-hmm. You idiot. Mm-hmm. She was obviously set up. How do you know? Yeah. Intuition. Yes. So he's making a mockery of his own practice. His, own, goes, his own theory. Yeah. It goes back to what you said, though. He guy has no self-awareness. No self-awareness. So then it, 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 now we set the stage for amazing blocking and the setting of some like great comedic oh, moments. Man. So um, Maria Gambrelli is coming to uh, be interviewed interviewed by him, and he's trying to set like the mood, like uh, either be interrogating yet sexy. Um, so he's like puts the shades, and the shades fly up. He tries to you know um, you know walk past this. He trips over the chair because it's too dark in the room now. It's like all his fault. And then he sneaks out. She walks in because he heard a noise. Comes back in. She's there, and he's like all freaked out, sitting on on his desk, breaking things. And then the the, the creme de la creme for me has always been like when she leaves, and he's spinning the globe, and he's like, "We will get down to the bottom of this." He gets his hands. Who gets their hands stuck in the the shift of the globe there? Exactly. Like so good, but like on the surface, when you're watching this kind of set here, I don't think you can tell that any of those things are going to happen. They're not obvious. Right. It's the what is it like? An unstoppable force and an immovable object. Like, that's Clouseau with all of these items here. (laughs) For all of the great blocking that's in that, which is remarkable and carried out explicitly, perfectly well by Clouseau, Mm -hmm. Peter Sellers. There's a moment in that scene, too, that is where I think a lot of the genius in that man comes as well. So he's in the office and he's practicing the line that he's going to lay on Gambrelli, which is somewhere between attempted seduction and get to the truth. In so far as it proves that she's not guilty because he's already made up his mind that mm-hmm. she's not. Mm-hmm. He hears something in the hallway. He goes out there, um, kind of looks down the hall. And he and uh, Hercule yeah. pass each other. <laughs> and then he hears something else in his office. 
So he starts to head back in there. And about the time he heads in his office, he hears something back down the hall. And he gives that, like, quick look. The double take. And then does, like, the quick double take <clears throat> with, like, the hand up. Like, he's going to... It's always the karate chop. Like... <laughs> That's not blocked. Mm-hmm. That's just him being him. Yeah, being the character. And he carries it out. In su- he looks like such an idiot yeah. when he does it. But he's in that moment where, as Clouseau, he's pretty certain that that quick shoulder turn and head jerk yeah. is going to catch whatever nefarious act is hiding behind yeah. the unseen phone booth. Mm-hmm. Of course it's not going to. Yeah. But there's lots of moments like that in the movie, which certainly are ad-libbed. Mm-hmm. And with physical comedy mm-hmm. that we're going to spend some time talking about yeah, yeah so much of that is with a little bit of time and space on camera mm-hmm. being able to play it out in a way that just showcases the talent of the performer because mm-hmm. if you trip or you pick your nose it comes across as hokey or schlocky yeah but to have a subtle way to do that yeah where you're all about the character and this is how they would really act because they don't know anything about their own self-awareness yep I, I beg everybody that's listening, even mm-hmm. if you don't watch the film, mm-hmm. go back and watch this sequence just for the blocking that Jesse mentioned and the ad-libbing that he carries out that yeah. we were just talking about yeah. here. It's really, really good. Yeah, it's currently on Amazon Prime, yeah, too, it is. If, if, you want, if you want to watch it. Not, yeah, 104 minutes. Quick watch. Yeah, very quick watch. So she comes. Again, he kind of makes the same claims, too, that, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solve this. I'm going to get down to the bottom of this. So she's actually been in, in prison in jail so he's gonna try and kind of watch out for her kind of like in the shadows Clouseau's uh, is he a master of disguise or just a man of costumes because like (laughs) him in the shadows is like some French salesman like trying to like pawn off balloons Balloons. this is such a great moment so we gotta talk now we talk about story a lot Matt on, on the podcast about setups and payoffs to me comedy um, and horror, yeah. I think, are the genres that I think are that works the best, actually. No question. Because if we're setting up a joke that pays off later, it's how well it was set up to get a laugh out of me. To, I think this is a, a montage, a kind of, or a series of shots, uh, or just scenes yeah. that uh, starts here now with this balloon man getting arrested because he doesn't have a license to sell balloons. And I think by the time the fourth or third time we see it, I think it pays off big time. Boy, doesn't it? Because <laughs> he gets arrested, and then we get the same like uh, like dolly shot of like this like French police car going <laughs> going there, and he's like in the back, like hanging out, or there's some some uh, the, the balloons are blocked, balloons blocked, the blocking back. out the window. <laughs> and I think it's the noise accompanied with the situation. They're like, "What a doof!" Like you're a cop and you're getting arrested. Like okay, that you need check yourself. But then it happens again. She she ends up in in prison again. He's waiting for her. He, I wanted to I wanted to know. He had like five or six paintings. Did he been there for like hours painting pictures, waiting? Like yeah. I think he did. I think he has. Especially when everyone in the world knows that he has allowed her to go free. Like Dreyfus even says they set her free again. Uh-huh. And he keeps let there, the trail of dead bodies around Maria Grambrelli is growing exponentially by the scene. I think at one point, I think it maxes out at like eight by the time we're done that yeah. she's involved in deaths when we get to the end, which I don't want to give away yet. Yeah. Um, and he just keeps letting her go because he's certain that she didn't do it 
mostly because back in the scene that we were talking about earlier mm-hmm. with the globe in the hand, yeah. she does something to him in that scene. Like he's got it bad for her the minute he lays his eyes on her. Mm-hmm. But she's sitting in the chair and he's sort of pacing around and he's tearing his trousers and she's ripping off the sleeve of his very finely tailored suit or oh, this rag, you know. And then he puts his hand on the back of the chair and she plays it up. Like she kind of caresses his hand and mm-hmm. you can see he pretty much for the first time in the film mm-hmm. loses all construct of what he's about to say. So she's working it and she knows what she's doing. Yeah. Um, and in a way, it's like a very innocent femme fatale. Yeah. That's, no. I don't want to get too deep into it, but kind yeah. of in a way, a little in, bit. in a comedic way she is. In a little way, yeah. Um, and it just plays out so brilliantly because he's literally going to the ends of the earth to put this guilty as all hell yeah. woman back out into the world because he basically just wants her. Exactly. And he has no idea how absurd it looks. <laughs> From like the street painter. <laughs> it's like dressed up like some beat generation sidewalk artist. Sidewalk Picasso. In France. Yeah. To... Man, and I hope we get to it, the nudist camp, uh, because that... That's the scene of scenes. Uh, yes. I'm going to play the siren sound effect Let's here. Let's get some sound in. <laughs> over and over and over. So by the time you get that three or four times, you're just like, you're expecting it now. And then mm-hmm. when it hits, I think that's I think that's a payoff. That's a good setup um, circumstantial humor that's uh, really working for me in this in this regard here. The facts in this case are: the body of the chauffeur was found in the bedroom of the second maid. Fact. Cause of death: four bullets in the chest. Fact. The bullets were fired at close range from a .25 caliber Beretta automatic. Fact. Maria Gambrelli was discovered with a murder weapon in her hand. Fact. The murder weapon was registered in the name of the deceased Miguel Ostas and was kept, mark you, in the glove compartment of the Ballon Rolls Royce. Fact! So we cut back to the chateau to Monsieur Ballon, um, where, you know, Peter Sellers, uh, uh, Inspector Clouseau is coming here to kind of just, you know, shake the bushes a little bit more, try to get more info. And this whole kind of, like, crew that's working here... We don't know, like, who who's, like, the guilty one. Because they're, like, all, like, uh, in everyone's business. Like, I love that shot oh, of the one, uh, the maid on the stairs, at, the, like, the foot of the stairs, uh, the guy at the door, and then Maria, like, at that door. Like, they all want to know, like, what's happening here. So, so <laughs> comes in. And it's this billiards room. And... <laughs> He can't just pull a cue out of the thing like a normal human. He breaks it in half, the first one. And then, so that's not enough. And uh, Monsieur Ballon tells him, that's okay, I've broken many in my time, too. He's, what a lie. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so then he hands him, like, com- comically. Again, so then comedy, for me, also comes in the form of the visual. Yeah. And I think this is a great visual because this pull cue. <laughs> the bridge cue. It's, it's, you get the bridge cue first, and then you get the pull cue, and it's curved. And so that one stacked up against that one, and she's like, something ain't right here. And what it, what does he tell me? He's like, he's like, it's good on on, on the edges, curve shots. <laughs> it's good on the curve shots. Which what? <laughs> There's no such thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So now Clouseau's trying to play regular pool billiards with this ridiculous cue. Naturally, the first one, so he shoots the cue ball off the table. Right. As they're trying to have this conversation about like, 
where he was, what his relation is to kind of what's going on here, the situation with him and his wife, and just how convoluted this whole situation is at this chateau, where at the end of the day, it almost feels like everybody's guilty. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> like everyone's got a hand in this pot. Right. And then in, in, in the best gag of, of this scene, he's going for another shot and just shoves this crooked cue right into the into the felt and tears the felt, which... In my head, I'm like, Jesus Christ, how much would that cost? Because you got to get your whole table reupholstered. Like, that's like a couple hundred dollars to, like, get that little fix. My friends would kill me if I did that to their pool tables. So, yeah, we're really setting the stage here for just, like, the tensions ramping up on. We want to know who's guilty. Uh, Clouseau's kind of getting closer to Maria Gambrelli. And then in the middle of all of this, to make matters even more confusing... Chief Inspector Dreyfus has like had it up to here with Clouseau and his self-awareness is at a zero, maybe a minus like one. He's chopped his finger off. I, didn't he not have like the coolest cigar cutter? Oh, the d- guillotine? guillotine. Oh, man, I want that. Yeah. I got to find that on Etsy. Yep. Uh, but <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cuts his finger off in his cigar cutter. And then later he's standing at the window and he's like, <laughs> Francois, can you help me? It appears I've stabbed myself with the letter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I'm just like, how are these characters doing these things? So, yeah, it just just keeps building. And I think think the comedy, at least for me, it's slapsticky, but it's not a type of slapsticky where it's like, I think, trying to be too hard. Um, And I think that happens a lot in slapstick comedy. Yeah, there's a natural grace to the way he pulls it off, from the pull cue to the putting the cues back in that stand that he knocks over 50 times and the tripping. (laughs) Good God, yes. And turning the pull cue over. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What I especially like in that is that curved pull cue that he gets, he keeps missing the pull cue after he's knocked the one that George Stevens catches in the air, Mm -hmm. Monsieur Ballon. Uh, and then he decides, oh, you know what I'll do? I'll just turn it over. So then that way I won't miss. Boom, rips the felt. <laughs> and I seem to have torn your table, Monsieur. If I am so t- <laughs> The seamless way he goes about using props in that physical comedy yes. is it, it's graceful and it's creative. <clears throat> and it really does, like I said earlier, to me, showcase just how talented mm-hmm. this man was. Oh, yeah. Um, it's easy to write off someone because of slapstickedness. Oh, yeah. I think in some ways, early Jim Carrey was sort of dismissed oh, for the same thing. I think so, yeah. But wildly talented. Very. Crazy as hell right now. Yeah. Or maybe permanently. Yeah. He's a weirdo. Yeah. But back in the early days mm-hmm. of Jim Carrey, even back to Living Color. Yeah, oh, yeah. Fire Marshal Bill. and like He was dismissed because I think we we don't see that physical ability. Yeah. When it's done bad, it's really bad. And when it's done really well, short of maybe like Chaplin, yeah. it's still also almost disregarded. Yeah, that, that, that's hard. That's kind of the curse of Hollywood, too, is where if you do something very well, they want more of it. So Carrie has to follow that up with Dumb and Dumber. As much. We like that one, though. Dude, yeah. Uh, but like then Liar, Liar and Ace Ventura 2 and then the Batman Forever. So he kind of falls into a trap as you know someone like... But again, looking at the town of Sellers, this is a man in Doctor Strangelove plays three very distinct characters in that film. Yeah, I think he's he's got a, a real good control of his acting ability and what the director wants out of it. You know that I'm not the biggest fan of Doctor Strangelove, but mm-hmm. it would not be because of Peter Sellers' inability to act in that film. Mm-hmm. But if you go from Inspector Clouseau yeah. and all of the iterations of the Pink Panther to Doctor Strangelove to what I think 
is one of the most underrated works in the history of Hollywood, which is being there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Hell Ashby. Mm-hmm. And, <sighs> the range. Mm-hmm. But he's going to be forgotten because the guy that just trips mm-hmm. in 1964 Hollywood yeah. is so prevalent oh, and yeah. so common. Mm-hmm. It's forgotten. But again, back to what I said, he handles it gracefully. And it almost seems like a lot of those, like if you go back to that pool cue scene, yeah. man, it's mostly one take. You can look, there's no cuts in there. Mm-hmm. That's him not screwing that up over and over. And you know when he did, yeah. he was clever enough to comedy his way out of it. Yeah. He had to have had some type of like theatrical background. Yeah, he did. Because it feels like a very stage-like presence and and, and performance. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh so coming up after this is an, another brilliant one too, where they followed uh, Monsieur Ballon's wife, girlfriend, uh, to this apartment, and she's been in there. So he's gonna go in there and get all the answers. So he hears shouting or screaming coming from the room, and is about to knock the door down as his butler <laughs> opens the room, and it's some opera singer singing for a group of people to send him flying, literally out the window into the water again. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Just love it. It's just it's it's great. It's it's such a treat to watch, and you know it's one of those things when you're watching it unfold. I think you kind of watch greatness happening, mm-hmm. and it's just are you are you relished the uh, what this person was able to to put before the screen because it's it's great. So back to that idea of the range. Mm-hmm. Seller's early early entertainment career started on radio in a show called The Goon Show, mm. British radio program. I believe it was British. And he was one of the voice actors on there. Well, if all you have as your immediate tool is your voice, you have to sort of learn how to take this audible experience that the audience is going to build a picture of as they hear it and have varying iterations of characters through voice. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really good training for him because if you can pull that off, then not only are you on the road to being the master impersonator of even characters that don't exist, but the ones you make up in your own head, Mm -hmm. but then you're establishing everything from the French accent that we see to the multiple accents in in, uh, Shot in the Dark to the multiple accents in Dr. Strangelove Mm -hmm. to the most useful idiot that's ever set foot on screen and being there. And that's all because of voice, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And Peter Sellers isn't going to remember it for his ability to play different voice parts. Sure. Mm-hmm. But it's just as much as essential component as the tripping is. Definitely, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a total complete uh, type type of performance. And again, this isn't the first film in this franchise. This is, <laughs> this is the second iteration. I think because it doesn't have that Pink Panther moniker, I think it gets forgotten that this is a part of the franchise. You know what I mean? Yes. Yep. What's well, interesting that after this was, after they're falling out... There is another film. It's called Inspector Clouseau, starring Alan Arkin, of all people. Mm-hmm. And no Blake Edwards, no Dreyfus, no Cato. And it was kind of such a disaster. I've actually never seen it, so I can't really comment on it. But like, it's one of those things where like, it's hard to kind of replace this this type of buffoonery. I don't know if you've ever partaken in, in the, the remake with Steve Martin, but it's him playing... Peter Sellers' performance, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's 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 hard. You're doing a parody of what was already so great, which is that's hard to do. That's those are tough acts to follow up. Let me ask you a question. Okay. So you're the big Bond guy in the okay room here. Yeah. In the original Casino Royale, 1967. Oh yes. You know Peter Sellers is in mm-hmm. that. 
What is? I've never seen that. Uh-huh. What's his role in that film? He's James Bond. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. I, I I was sort of leading you down that yeah, road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess we can say there's not. It's not a perfect career. I think we'd probably both agree that's a mistake. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But that he could be that character, and then also precede that with Lolita mm-hmm. of all things. He's in Lolita. Mm-hmm. So he does try his hand at drama to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, I it, like you said, it's the curse of what you're typecast as. Yeah. And in Peter Sellers' day, and even still today, that physically comedic actor yeah. is most of the time not recognized. And I think that still happens a lot today. Even yeah. even you mentioned Robin Williams, perfect example. Great physical comedian with a t- burst of energy. But then when he took a hand at drama in films like One Hour Photo and Insomnia, you're like, whoa, this guy's pretty good at this, too. Well, I mean, like Dead Poets and... Oh, and, um, Dead Poets Society, yeah. Uh, come on, what's the other one? Awakenings? That one, but no, the other one, um, Matt Damon, Ben Affleck. Oh Flubber? God. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> yeah, so I think people were sort of surprised because like, oh my God, look at Mork playing this character. Yeah, Mork for Mork. Right. Yeah. Well, he's off the cocaine, at least at that time, mm-hmm. and you recognize... Just tripping or being physically like that is mm-hmm. not just lucking into it. Mm-hmm. I might argue that that might be more difficult because to use your body as tool for gag, there's a lot of bruised knees and brokenness that happens in some of those pratfalls. Oh, yeah. And if you can't continue, then you lose your tool mm-hmm. and then the show doesn't go on. Like It's, it's such a tough, tough position to carve a career out of yep so let's get to the big scene here okay, let's do it the nudist colony oh yeah so <laughs> so he's he's again trying he's trailing maria she's been um, kind of trailed to this 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 nudist colony uh, <laughs> and again we get the prop humor now too which you know he he's <laughs> like you can't go out there dressed like that i'm the chief i'm, I'm a, a chief inspector i of course i can so he goes out with this guy's guitar and then we've been get, swimming. Yeah, we get, we get the great kind of staging of him, the bushes blocking any of his parts and his backside. And then he gets himself a nice buoy raft to kind of hide the rest and everyone guitar. Yeah, and everyone else. They're like, it's like this is a weird like nudist colony. It's almost like you know those like Sandra D like beach films. <laughs> like, What's awesome about it though is the player is literally in the place he can't just imagine. He's so fortunate to be in. Yeah, and as he's traversing. Mm-hmm. The inhabitants of, I think it's called Sunshine, Mm -hmm. Sunshine Camp Nudist Colony. Every woman that he runs into, he just goes saucer eyes, like Mm -hmm. almost out of a cartoon. And he almost forgets that Maria Gambrelli is who he's looking for. And then he stumbles upon her too. It just happens to kind of find her. Yeah, I think he faints when he sees her because he's just like, I get to see you naked now. Like He's just so bad at this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, colossally bad. So... The police is coming to kind of like arrest her because she's like wanted again, and yeah, they called in another murder, and she's there next to the body. Yeah, of I believe they found the body in the closet. Dudu, her yeah. name was Dudu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so now they're both naked. They're like trying to like make an escape, so they're driving down the road naked, and they're just like, "We'll get to my apartment, and I'll think of something for us to do." And of course, they're gonna hit like gridlock of gridlocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that little bit too, where she like kind of like bites, bites his shoulder, bites him on the shoulder. Yeah, and then again talking about the setups and payoffs, we get it like the final time, which is the down the road, and we get the 
cops all staring hanging onto this like jalopy <laughs> and they're like looking in again like it's it's done really well and it's i think because it's the familiar and because we've seen it the same way four times now it's funny you know what i mean like it's it's set up very well show it three times and your audience gets it mm-hmm. if not by the third time certainly by the fourth <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, so to me that's that that's that's really well timed comedy. So now the two of them are like they're in it so deep now, and this is where Dreyfus like has like a moment with like a psychologist, and he's like, "I must get rid of Clouseau and like all, all of this kind of craziness." So they have a night out on town, like an official date date. It's no business to tie to it. What a night! Like, what are they like? They go to uh, the the Spanish tap dancer. They go to the the Russian tiki Cossack party, the tiki lounge, the Russian Cossack. Like, they're hitting like every culture in this night. I'd be like wiped out after the first one. Yeah, but along this, we're getting this kind of mysterious figure, and I love the music that accompanies him. It's like it's like brr, I'll, I'll find it here so I, so so I can play it. But it's almost like this character has stepped out of an, an Italian giallo from Mario Bava. We got this gloved, black-handed um, killer who we kind of think he's he's a part of it. Uh, that he's like, this is the real killer. And he's trying to take out Maria or clues. We kind of don't know at this point. You know what I mean? Right. What do you kind of think of this? Because this would be like just like three separate scenes, but they're all playing off each other. They're getting drunker each one. You know what I mean? The collateral damage that we've seen him sort of inflict upon himself and the apparatus that he's been engaged with in the film now turns to the bystanders that he comes into contact with each one of these dance restaurant places. And from poisoning the Russian Cossack dancer to the poison dart that the guy takes in the neck, this assassin is inches away from killing Clouseau four different times, yet by luck or stupidity or whatever you want to call Clouseau's superability, here it is, here's that sound. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> so, like, evil sounding. Like, that's like a killer, like, in those Italian films. He's going to go slice them up, but... <laughs> Avoids them all. <laughs> Avoids them all. Cossack drinks himself to death. The one guy gets shot. Poison dart in the neck. He shoots the wine and kills the guy next to <laughs> <laughs> And he's completely oblivious to all of it. Yep. And then Clouseau's ready to make it all work out, right? To, yeah, to make it. To seal the deal. This is the moment he's been waiting for. And I love it, too, because when he goes out on the stage to dance with the Russians, he splits his pants and <laughs> Maria Gambrelli uses her dress to kind of cover him up. So they get to his apartment and he's making her walk ahead of him. He's, I don't want to walk in front of you, nutty, nutty thingy. Don't you to see? Like, he's mm-hmm. so, like, shy, but in a charming way. And it is one of those moments, like I spoke about earlier, the down the hall with the quick sh- sort of, you know, shake and the look with the handshake as he tries to seek whoever's in the hall. It's that moment again where he's just <laughs> in that subtleness that yeah. is so, so well done. Anyway, he gets her in the sack, right? <laughs> and there's about... Oh, my little lovely darling. Hello, my darling, darling. My... They're both so drunk, and not before he, like, whacks her on, like, the banister of the stairs, too. <laughs> he carries her up the stairs. So he finally gets her in the room, and um, there's a there's a ring at the door, and that's it's this mysterious figure who brings him this clock. Ooh, the clock. So then he goes back in. <laughs> and who's waiting for him? Kato on Kato. the sneak attack. Yeah. Literally jumps on top of them in the bed, and yeah. it just becomes like this like 
crazy orgy of karate kicks and Pillow like fight, yeah. a miasma where she knocks him out. And then I think the best gag of physical comedy in this entire film, mm-hmm. kudos to the actor playing Kato. His name escapes me right now. But he drags him out of the room and drags him his head down the <laughs> Yes. Yep. Like, boom, 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 boom. Like, and that's him. That's really him. Like, he, like, said, yeah, I'll do that, like, for the day. They maybe paid him a little extra that day, but Jesus Christ. And then the clock goes off. It's a bomb. It misses him again. Another near miss. But now no more screwing around. Like, it's time's We're going to solve this mystery. We got to solve this mystery, and I have a plan. And so then we get a nice kind of almost Abbott and Costello gag in front of the chateau, which is like, sit your watch. What time is it? Yours is fast. Yours is this kind of whole bit, which kind of, it comes back in just a little bit. Yes, it does. He and Hercule can't get their watches set, so they decide instead of setting them to just count it down. Yes. So Literally that, one, yeah. two, count it down. So when I think of great whodunit films or just a whodunit, I naturally gravitate towards not the movie clue, but the board game clue, because it's a game all about trying to find out who murdered so-and-so with the implement in which room type of a thing. Mm -hmm. So it's got this era of sleuthing and not quite Sherlock Holmesy. That's like, it's so much more London than what this film's trying to be. But it's this moment here that they're all in the room, all your prime suspects gathered together, and through the flick of a switch, I'm going to find out and point out who the killer is. But not before I stumble over a chair here and a this there. You idiot! Steps on stepping on everybody's on everybody's toes, like it's just done very well. Again, it's more of the uh, more of the same that's been just kind of expertly played by Peter Sellers to this point. What well, his plan with Hercule before the watch bit goes down is to essentially use the powers of deduction and reason with all of them in a room to get the killer to admit that they've done it. And as you're watching this, what you're finding out is. All of the people in the room are more informed than he is. And every time they say, well, I know because you just told me that. He says, well, of course I know. I just told you that. I'm the one that told you that. Do you think I'm an idiot? And then you get the the Muths bit and all of that. Muths. And all of the, the gags, the tripping and this and that. And, you know, um, maybe just a, a couple seconds here of like some of that discussion in the room might be kind of cool for them because to kind of see where we found his around. fingerprints, Mr. Bellon. And... They were your fingerprints. Well, why not? It's my house. I've often been in that closet. For what reason? Last time was moths. Moths? Moths. Yes, moths. Maria was complaining of moths. Moths? Is that right, Maria, that, that you were complaining about these moths? Yes, I did complain about moths. Oh, you mean moths? Oh, you're the flying moths. Yes, of course, of course, of course. And it's like that. And the whole sequence is like that. Now mm-hmm. add, which is just the audio, mm-hmm. the visual to that, and you get the worst detective ever trying to uncover this plot. And in fact, let's just get to it, he doesn't ever uncover the plot, does he? No. And what's, what's, <laughs> no. what's nice about it is when they kind of like start like all bickering and kind of like pointing fingers at each other. Well, it was you and you put the gun and you're cheating on me and this and that. He keeps trying to inject himself into the miasma of chaos. Breaks the fourth wall a little bit though too, doesn't he? Yeah, and they keep like pushing him out. So this is like, he's just so far removed from the thing. At one point he turns around and looks at the camera and kind of makes a frowny face like, can you believe this is happening? Mm-hmm. And then tries to wiggle his way back into the crowd. It's so so smartly done to break the fourth wall that way. Mm-hmm. Clouseau acknowledging like, 
I'm trying to take you on this trip and these fools just won't let me finish. Exactly. Where he's almost exhausted because they won't let him in the group. But we're exhausted because he's such a bad sleuth. Yes. it's I love it. Yeah. And in between all this, um, our mysterious figure is re- revealed to be Chief Inspector Dreyfus, who's just like, <laughs> I'm going to kill him. Yeah. I don't care how. Yeah. I'm going to put all this dynamite in this car. And when he drives away, he's going to blow up. So... The lights are killed in the room. There's a lot of shouting, a lot of mystery, and all the characters just flee out of this chateau mm-hmm. into the car. They all get in down the road. He's like, Cluso, stop <laughs> It just explodes. And all of the killers. All the suspects, all the killers. Everyone had a guilty hand of it. They're all dead now. Yeah. It's like, I guess I solved it. I think that the... Monsieur Balloon's wife mm-hmm. kills the first person. I know that Monsieur Balloon Balloon kills the gardener in the greenhouse. Mm-hmm. I've no idea who kills the person at the nudist colony, and I'm sure there's a couple in there that I'm still forgetting why I know who killed all the dancers and such. And at the end of the day, I don't think it matters. It doesn't. No, yeah. Because this car with all the bad guys has been blown to smithereens, and I guess Clouseau has... One save the day, yeah, yeah. Say and somehow gets locked the, down the girl. Gets the girl, yeah. So yeah. she comes out. They embrace. They have one moment. We think we're gonna fade out, and then in the bushes, we get one final Kato. And he like karate chops the both of them into the fountain. Into the fountain. <laughs> I love it. Like this is such a, a great finale. It's again, it's a film that doesn't. It while it might have airs of seriousness to it. It never takes itself too seriously. Right. And I think that's very important for a film like this. Yes. Now, for some of the other films we're going to talk about, no, take yourself seriously because that's what you are. But this film knows what it, what it is. They This is their second ride on this kind of train here. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is that this was actually um, a French uh, play called Les Idiotes. Uh, I know I'm probably butchering that, but it was written by Marcel Achard, and they were going to planning to adapt it, and then they got Blake Edwards involved, and he said, well, I I really only want to do this if I can put the Clouseau character in here, the one that we established in the prior film. So can I take one more step on that? Yeah. So who does he call to help him write it? Oh, shit. William Peter Blatty. Yeah. Mr. Exorcist. I thought that was fascinating. No joke. How did he get involved in that? So the two of them pin this together. And actually, to the French play that you were, Les Idiotes, Mm -hmm. I guess Mm -hmm. is how you'd say that, Mm -hmm. it was not well received. Yeah. Um, So I spent some time last night after I finished watching this looking at the reviews from this film in 1964. And man, they are all over the place. It is like what we talked about. It's either you like sellers and you're into this, or you're going to want to gouge your eyes out. And I don't think the gouge your eyes out is fair at all. No, yeah. Um, you have to look at this and say, this movie knows what it is. It's comfortable in its own silliness, and it's going to celebrate the genius of physical comedy. Oh, yeah. And even if that doesn't work for you, because I'm admitting mm-hmm. I'm not a slapstick guy at all. Mm-hmm. Like, the three stooges come on, and I'm out of the room before the first eye block shows up at the nose. I love that shit. I know, right? <laughs> so... It's just it's just handled, I think, with such grace. And I love choreography and film mm-hmm. in places that we don't expect it. Like we talked about John Wick three. <clears throat> oh yeah. And that's I know the ending sequence is pretty drawn out for you. Mm-hmm. But it's choreographed beautifully, as are all the fight sequences yeah, in yeah, those yeah. films. Mm-hmm. You don't think of that as being like when I think choreography, I think like 
you know, um, a musical, Les Miserables. God, I can't believe I just said Les Miserables. Yeah. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. No, mm-hmm. it's not. It's also the blocking. Mm-hmm. And if it's done in a way that you don't even realize it's being blocked. Yeah. Because every time I watch a musical, I know that they practice that dance step. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to hit your mark. This is kind of the, 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 the term. Here's the thing, though, Jesse. If you miss your mark in a comedy, you yeah. just stop, cut, redo it. Yeah. If you miss your mark in John Wick or in Shot in the Dark. You're getting killed. <laughs> you broke something like yeah. yourself. Exactly. When you're swinging those swords, you miss. Mm-hmm. There goes your thumb. Yeah, so it's yeah, more expertly kind of kind of done. you gotta, <laughs> you got to really have your timing down. And dismissed yeah. widely, roundly. Yeah. By some people in 1964. I know we spent a lot of time, like, two-ish months with horror. Like, horror's, like, bottom of the barrel, like, at least from Hollywood's oh, yeah. point of view. Like, they're the they're the bastard stepchild. Well, this is the challenge to and, it. Yeah, comedy's, like, right on top of them, you know what I mean? They're the next one mm-hmm. down. And then, like, you got your, like, Victorian historic dramas are at the tippy top, which just make me want to just vomit everywhere. I know you saw Downton Abbey this weekend. <laughs> no fucking way. <laughs> I can't do that. If it was set in London or Europe and it's po and it's pre like nineteen hundred, I can't do it. I, I literally can't. I'll die. I'll die watching it. They'll find want, they'll find me dead. You don't want the period piece from eighteen boring? No. Me either. No, yeah, that's I I can't do that in film. They're like novel, knock yourself out. But yeah, William Peter Blatty, I forgot about that. Like I would like to know more about how he got involved because and how did he screenwriter and then on the path to like author and writing the exorcist like that that's odd too you know what i mean yes it is really interesting so how do you do that and i mean think yeah yeah it's so polar opposite oh yeah so i'll have to do more research on him to kind of see if he's written some other films that are just kind of hiding in there but yeah that that credit struck me i was like hey i know that name i did last night yeah there isn't a there is in between no weird really i wonder isn't. if him and blake edwards were like buds you know or something like yep. you know what i mean yep Okay, well, I think time now more than ever. Let's rate A Shot in the Dark. We have Rocket, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. I will let you go first today, Matt. Um, well, I think the audience can pretty much tell where I am from what I've said earlier. In a, a subgenre of a genre that is not the first of my preferred ones. Mm-hmm. I don't love comedy like you do. I like it. But there's distinct pieces. Um and this is a not distinct piece for me. Like slapstick is forgettable. Man, watching this was so enjoyable last night. Mm-hmm. I was laughing out loud. Uh, I thought it was afraid I was going to wake up the house. <laughs> it was really like some movies are a slog to get through, even if they're good. They're, this isn't a sluggish at all. Mm. And slapstick can also be a slog because it becomes so so juvenile and so silly that it just weighs me down. This is not that. Um, it's the best slapstick movie for me that I can, in recent memory, that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I love this film. Uh, it's not even single barrel. This is top shelf. A Shot in the Dark is comedic brilliance for me. We didn't get into the Peter Sellers story too much, but in short, it's the tortured soul through various circumstances that turns to booze and drugs. He's dead at 50. <clears throat> Um, it's a great movie HBO made. Yeah. Life and Death of Peter. So I think Jeffrey, Jeffrey Rush. Rush. Yeah. Yeah. You should check it out mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it. Um, it's it's pretty accurate. He seemed only comfortable on screen mm-hmm. playing out his demons in comedic roles. Yeah. Like a lot of these comedy yeah. icons have. John Belushi. Robin yeah, Williams. Yeah, exactly. Jim, we can go on and on and on about the short-lived life mm-hmm. of those. And so... 
top shelf for me, mm-hmm. and I want to ask you one question before you give me your rating. Okay, good. Is the physical comedy role in Hollywood a shorter lifespan than the bombshell? Who has the more? Who has the longer? And one is because of age, and the other one is because of death. <laughs> Which one has? Right, and it's hard. For, I don't know if there's an answer, but it's worth considering, isn't it? Because for every Belushi, there's a Marilyn Monroe. You know what I'm talking right. about? Like they all kind of follow that, like that kind of tragic nature. You know what I mean? Everybody cries about oh, women's careers in Hollywood are too short unless you're Meryl Streep, and then you just go from hot. I'm doing that with quotes mm-hmm. or whatever it is to mother. Okay, so that's fair. Mm-hmm. Hollywood ages men better than it does women. There's no question about that. But what's not ever discussed is that comic, the Belushi, Sellers, Williams, mm-hmm. their lifespan might even be shorter and permanently shorter. I think I've told you about this. I have a book here on the bookshelf. It's called The Confederacy of Dunces. Okay. And it's a project that's literally, everyone thinks it's cursed because it's literally circulated John Belushi, uh, John Candy, Chris Farley, like all these like... Richard Comics. Pryor, did yeah. crack attitude? Not, not him. It's 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 actually it's it's a, it's a fat white man. Okay. <laughs> so, but like that that type of thing, like all these great legendary comedians on film and on the stage have been tied to it, and they're they they all die in their thirty. You know what I mean? Like yeah. a real short life. Those three especially. I mean, he makes it to fifty, and I guess you could say in that type of. It's still young. Career. Yeah, it's still a young man. Yes. Yeah. It so. better be because I'm forty six. I know. You're almost, you're almost there. I'm <laughs> just <I know>. kidding. <laughs> no, that's a great rating. Um, yeah, I'll get right into it too. I hadn't seen this film and it's been at least seven or eight years. And like I told you last week before we ended the Halloween episode, I used to, I looked forward to video rental night and I would rent shit like the Godzilla movies and just random things. Like that's how I kind of found film serials like Dick Tracy and the Bat- Flash Gordon stuff and then uh, even um, so, um, like stuff like you know the original Spider-Man cartoon, the '67. But this was also one of them. The, this whole series, mm-hmm. and I couldn't get enough of it because I have that Stooges background. Like I, I just eat that shit up. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of just fit that vein. It's circumstantial, uh, blocking humor that I really, 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 really like. Yeah. And Peter Sellers is arguably one of the t- in top three at doing this with this character. This is not only the best uh, film in this entire franchise. I think this is one of the great film comedies of all time. Yes. Definitely from the 60s. Uh, yeah, it's another top shelf rating for me. I think everyone needs to see it. You really don't... I mean, if you want to, watch the... Uh, there's parts I like in the other Pink Panther films. I don't know if I like them as like totality as films. Yeah. I like this film in its entirety because yep. it offers a lot of those same things and it's a very complete and satisfying story. Yeah. So from Jesse, it's a top shelf rating for A Shot in the Dark. Amazon Prime, if you had that, I know a lot of you out there do, you own most streaming services, go watch it right now. It's, it's on there. Right. That's well, hour and four minutes. <laughs> or oh, 104 minutes. In and out in a quick minute. Mm-hmm. Um, and it flies by because... It's so entertaining watching these these gags unfold on screen. It just it just goes by so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good. Yeah. So let's end the episode as we usually do with the nightcap. A little bit more of the seventeen ninety two. Yeah. So yeah, you were the the genesis of these questions. So I'll let you hit me with this question for this week. So this one I want to do, which is favorite comedic sequence, and by that I mean scene in any film. So. <clears throat> A particular moment, a scene, a short, a short little run 
that is, and that's an impossible list for you to come up with, so I understand. Yeah. Right now, in this moment, it is what for you? Okay. Can I give you some honorable mentions oh, first? Sure, man. I really think it the the scene in Super Bad with the erotic dancing period blood is just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a situation you would never want to be in. Boy, that's for sure. And just the way like Jonah Hill's having the time of his life and just turns into utter whore. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing I like about comedy was <laughs> right. like um, joy to whore. Uh-huh. I think is a great uh, kind of roller coaster to take. Yeah. in in comedy, it's good. The diarrhea scene in Dumb and Dumber is an all-timer for me. Like, I've never seen my dad laugh harder at something. It's just, it's it's too funny. And I know everyone out there is trying to be all, like, quaint with their pinky up and think they're all proper and everything. You watch that, you laugh. You know what I mean? Yes. You laugh at potty humor. Like, it's it's just something you do. Yeah. There's a lot of sequences I love in Airplane. Uh, mm-hmm. Have you ever been in a Turkish prison? Uh, Gladiator, surely you don't call me serious. That whole film is, I, I can, it's too funny. It's too funny. Yeah. Um, but if I had to pick the greatest, my favorite of today, the greatest comedy sequence, you mentioned him earlier in the episode, Charlie Chaplin is the legend of legends of comedy. And if I had to pick one from his oeuvre, it has to be from modern times, the self-feeding machine. Uh I think this Charlie Chaplin was directing, writing, acting, and and doing this great character, the Tramp, in all these films, late twenties, early thirties, and he was coming up with a lot of these stagings and contraptions himself. This self feeding machine is something that you know feeds you a piece of cube steak, <laughs> a pie, and then it wipes your mouth, and then there's a corn on a cob on a little kind of rotisserie, and it's all great at first, and it looks like something that again very. You could break down the themes of what this machine means with, you know, you know, uh, the labor force and consumerism. And we need our workers to not stop working. They need to keep working and eat at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this thing just goes haywire. And I'll have to post the clip on Facebook because it is just nothing short of hilarious. Like it just this thing just slapping him all over the place and just dumping the soup on him and shoving the pie in his face and the thing smashing him in the face. And that's him. That's all him. That's all his brain, his creation, his acting. And close in that film is there's a great ice skating scene in a mall in that film. And he's doing it blindfolded. And he he's on a second story. And he comes so dangerously close like 10 or so odd times to like going over that edge. And his just timing is just so – he's so in control of his bodily movements. Like him, Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd were just – Again, it's silent film. That's all physical comedy. I, it had to be more physical because we can't do it through dialogue mm-hmm. at that time. So that's mine for for today. There's there's a ton I like. I, I love comedy. Yeah, it could go on and on. I have two honorable mentions too and then mine. Mm-hmm. One of them's a weird honorable mention though. So let me do the one that's not weird honorable mention. You mentioned earlier, I love forgetting Sarah Marshall. Mm-hmm. The part that really is hilarious to me in that film is that goddamn puppet show at the end. <laughs> And it's die, so, die. I can't. <laughs> it's so stupid. Yes. But it's in the same kind of way that we've talked about Clouseau and this being so unaware of his ridiculousness mm-hmm. is sort of that in that movie for Jason Segal. Like I think he knows how ridiculous puppets are as Dracula, but he's all about it. And it's so bad, it's kind of good. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, exactly. So I don't think, I mean, that's not like classic. I find that really funny. It's great. So the other one that I kept going to, and I had to keep kicking it out because it's not like, 
officially comedy, so this is kind of a cheat. But it's in a movie also that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Zack and Mary. Okay. I love that film. Mm-hmm. And I love a lot of parts of that film. I love all the things that Elizabeth Banks promised me she was going to be and then seemed how to never get to. Mm-hmm. I loved uh, Kevin Smith. I love the song that live recorded in the scene that I'm about to talk to that never made it on any album. And it's the scene when they're about to shoot. Their, their, their sex scene. And it ends up being, Jesse, in a weird way, one of the better love scenes in film ever. Like, I mean this, with, and I don't mean to offend anybody, so please don't be offended when I say this. Like, they start off in that scene to bone. Mm-hmm. Like, to just... Yeah. And they end up making love. Mm-hmm. And it's scored by a band that I, I love live. Mm-hmm. You know, live yeah. is one of my all-time favorite bands. Yeah. They did a 15-second crawl for that. Yeah. And that's and it's not funny, so that's out because it's not comedy. But it's in a comedy film. You know what's great about that, though, is uh, it's... Their version, their vi- version of the two of them isn't funny. It's very right. passionate. It's right. very in the moment. The outside people, the crew, so to speak, it's very funny. Yeah, his pants are falling down. She's like, "Oh, UPS, do you have a package for me?" Yes, I do. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's comedic, but the actual moment, it's very heartfelt and pretty emotional. So, yeah, that's that one's interesting. The Craig T. Robinson stuff with his wife is really funny. Yeah. There's a whole um, crop dusting part and that, like, there's a whole bunch, that, that movie's really funny mm-hmm. and and also sincere, but okay, so I'm going to go back in the time machine for my actual answer to this mm-hmm. one as okay. well. Okay. Between 1937 and 1941, mm-hmm. Cary Grant and Irene Dunn did four movies together. Mm-hmm. That is my favorite on-screen couple. I think they have the best chemistry. You know my proclivities towards Cary Grant. Yep. If there was ever a man that I would fall in love with, it would be Cary Grant. I admire him on so many different levels. Yeah. Irene Dunn is one of the most unrefined or unappreciated treasures for actresses in Hollywood. Multiple times nominated, grew up on a, on a riverboat with her dad in a vaudeville act. Super talented. Yeah. The Awful Truth mm-hmm. by Leo McCary yeah. has a sequence where after having essentially divorced the two of them, um, Cary Grant believes she's having an affair with a voice coach and he goes in to hear her sing and as he stands in the back of the room trying to be inconspicuous he trips over the same table about 50 <laughs> times <laughs> Yes, and it is done as effortlessly mm-hmm. as Sellers does the pool cues in this mm-hmm. but it's one of the things I like Grant more than I like Sellers so maybe that's why I chose yeah, yeah, this yeah. versus that Although that was also be in the contention if it wasn't so on the nose of sure we just watched the movie. Yep. Um, Cary Grant had a lot of that in him too. He could be the everyman. He could be dashing. He could be comedic. He could be James Bond and was supposed to be the first one until yeah. he turned it down. Yeah. But that moment in 1941's The Awful Truth. Everybody brings up bringing up baby. Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about the Philadelphia story. Everybody talks about his girl Friday. Mm-hmm. They're all fine. Yeah. Gunga Dan, go watch Gunga The Awful Dan. Truth. Go watch The Awful Truth. <laughs> yeah. Because it is such an interesting romantic comedy in pre-World War II Hollywood. We could have a conversation on that someday, Mm -hmm. too. And it's just handled so beautifully. And to pay that off with what happens in that scene to how the end goes with the door between the two of them and the clock striking midnight. Have you ever seen The Awful Mm -hmm. Truth? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. It's... It's a good one. That's my favorite <clears throat> sequence, is him tripping over that table in that film. Interesting that we both went kind of classic cinema because 
a lot of those guys kind of just kind of paved the path for like how it would be played by other actors, whether that be Chaplin to the Marx Brothers to the Stooges to Cary Grant. And, you know, you got all these other kind of actors, you know, playing off that, you know, your Mickey Rooney's and then that goes into your 50s with your Dean Martin's and your all, all those type of actors. It's, it's very fascinating uh, to me. The, the, the comedy, much like horror, has been around since the beginning because... They work on the same premise. You had to scare people without sound. You do that through the visual. And then you had to make people laugh uh, without sound, which is through the visual. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Silent films all based on the visual. The but, release as verb in both those films, whether it be laughter or screaming, mm-hmm. comedy and horror, mm-hmm. is essentially the same thing, just a different response to the payoff. And if done well, you'll get an actual physical response mm-hmm. From the yikes moment in the movie or the haha moment in the film. Yeah. And depending upon what you're listening to, yeah. sometimes those sound the same. Yeah. Um, you brought up one more thing and then I'll, we'll get out on this. Yeah. You brought up 1960s. And for as much as you, you and I like that middle to latter period to the mid period of the 1970s, is it fair to say that the 1960s is a really bad decade for comedy? Could be. Because uh, I think... I, now that I'm thinking about it, yeah, because I know like The Graduate is officially comedy, but barely, not really, but yeah, barely, yeah, barely, yeah, that's pushing it. I th- One of my favorite all-time comedies is actually it's early '60s though, and that's it's a mad, 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 mad yeah. world. But like slapstick though, but yeah, slapstick, epic, chase film. But as we kind of get into the later '60s, no. and shit started to get a lot more real, the film started getting a lot more gritty. Comedy didn't quite fit that. Horror was able to tag along. But, like, comedy, it was... But then it was, like, well, what's going to make us laugh? You know what I mean? Like, what are we going to take seriously, like, during, like, this time? That's what makes that, that period so interesting, mm-hmm. the types of films coming out. And you compare that to the early 60s, your Cleopatras, your Lawrence of Arabias, to then you got your Midnight Cowboys and your Deer Hunters, and you're just like, whoa. Like, yeah. Such polar opposites. Right. That's pretty great. This has been a fun conversation about A Shot in the Dark. Uh, like, I hope people... Uh, they'll probably see this in the queue and be like, I've never seen that skip or whatever. Mm-hmm. Hope people really listen to this and seek out the film because it's a good watch and I hope it, it'll be a good listen for you too. Yeah. But um, yeah, just this is our first Who Done It. We talk about it. We talked about it. Next week, we're going to pause for a bit. Uh, Matt and I like to throw in new films that are coming out, new releases, uh, and kind of call that a small batch film review. At our year, at our year uh, episode coming up in January, I, we, we might almost have to kind of do like a glossary of like all our terms: what small batches, mm. what what uh, what sour mashes, to kind of everyone get get everyone caught up on the lingo that we use uh, through our bourbon theming. Oh, that's a really Whis- good idea. Whiskey theming. I like that. So we're gonna do a small batch review. It's a one-off. It's not tied to a mystery. We got a big film coming out this Friday, and that's Terminator: Dark Fate. Uh, we. Previously uh, covered uh, the first Terminator film months ago, <laughs> back in like March. Mm-hmm. And I think this is, again, we're taking that Halloween route where we're just kind of starting fresh, ignoring all the crap, but acknowledging the good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to see it. I don't know. The trailers have me just kind of so lukewarm. Yeah. And I kind of have echoes of Terminator Genesis. And whatever, yeah. but hey, I'm hopeful, and maybe there's something good that's in there. But we got that coming for you next week Terminator, Dark Fate, and then after that, we'll get right back on the Who Done It. We talk about it train with some 
absolutely incredible films. Like, I think that's going to be the theme in this cast is, other than, like, we don't know what Knives Out leaves for us, the films in this cast cask are badass. They're incredible films that I don't think a lot of you have seen. That's fair. We'll just kind of leave it at that. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to go make my bed. I hope I don't stumble over every cover and everything because I would actually like to get the job done and get to bed sometime this night. I hope you've used some myth bills <laughs> in your sheets so that the myths have not devoured I hope sheets. Kato isn't hiding in the shower because <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like You have to be on edge 24-7. You do. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody, have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us an email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. A Shot in the Dark is property of the Mirish Corporation, Mirish Films, and United Artists, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Come back, you fools! Come back! Puto! Stop them! Stop them! What? The bomb! The what? The bomb?